Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are talking about Edgar Allan Poe's first published story, Metzengerstein, originally published in 1832. Before we get into it, though, we want to take a minute here just to let you know that we did another extra bonus episode for people on Patreon. In fact, it was it was two episodes this time. These were on the the space horror novella The Dust by Brian Evanson. This is something that we did for supporters at the Keeper level and up. That is the level where your votes on the Patreon ballots count triple. Uh, each vote you cast counts as three. Uh, also, when you join at that level, you get a free nomination for Elder Sign for Lower Deck and also for ATAW. So it's it's really the level at which you get a just huge, really a massive say in what we cover across the network. And The Dust was an absolutely awesome, awesome story. So we hope that you'll uh, check out joining us on Patreon at the Keeper level to get access to our episodes on it and to, to get all these free nominations and just participate in choosing what we do on the network. Yeah, that was really awesome. I was really glad we were able to cover that story. These episodes were a lot of fun to record and read and just I'm exceedingly grateful to everybody who recommends stuff to us because I don't know 99.9% of the time it's stuff I'm really glad to have come across and read uh that 0.1% I don't know maybe it doesn't even exist but you got to leave room <laughs> you got to leave room for error I guess uh but yeah this episode we're talking about Metz Angerstein as I said it's Poe's first published story and boy, there's a lot to, to discuss with it. I, I'm not going to say anything now because my real opening comments on the story are going to come after Glenn talks about the, uh, I don't know, frontispiece work, the title kind of stuff, the pretext portion of the story, because <laughs> there's a lot going on there. So I'll hold off uh, on saying anything further until we get just into the opening of the story. Right, because this story opens with an epigram from Martin Luther. It's in Latin, so you know that that means I'm I'm really excited by it. And and, and here's what it says: Pestis eram vivus, moriens tua moris ero. And and I would translate this as: Alive, I have been your plague; dying, I will be your death. And uh, we do usually pause to talk about epigrams, especially over on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. So I see no reason not to do that here. So the question is, right at the start, is you know what does this epigram suggest that we should be ready for in this story? Well, before we even talk about that, there is another <laughs> uh, subtitle to this story, Metz Engerstein, which is a tale in the imitation of the German. Uh, this was a big deal, I guess. This is to let the reader know that what they'll be reading is a gothic horror or fantastic story, which are outgrowths of the German romantic movement that really started in the 18th century, the middle of the 18th century with uh, uh, Wolfgang uh, Goethe, who wrote, you know, The Sorrows of Young Werther, which is really what kicked off this movement. This Sturm und Drang. German romantic movement that then spread to England and America. Poe is super aware of this. He's read his Kant. He's read his Schiller. He knows his German transcendental philosophers. He knows all the tricks of the German romantic movement. But the Gothic movement also grew out of this. The tales of the strange and the weird. And Poe is letting his readers know that they're going to be reading a, a strange tale. Uh, and there are tropes really associated with tales like this, one of which is a spectral horse. That's not something I knew. But now the legend of Sleepy Hollow, I guess, makes a lot more sense in, <laughs> in American letters. And we do get a spectral horse in this story. Uh, 
And one other thing to point out here with this subtitle is, you know, I read this in the Norton Critical Edition of uh, Selected Works of Edgar Allan Poe. And the editor said that this word imitation could indicate that Poe is parodying this style rather than writing it in, in earnest. Um, I'm not sure that makes a difference to us anymore, since good satire and good parody, when you're really far away from the time when it was written and you don't know what's a joke and what's not, is indistinguishable from the actual source material that the parody is is making fun of. So... I don't think it makes such a difference to us, uh, but really what we can gather is that Poe is leaning on a bunch of these existing tropes of, of the German Romantic period of Gothic fiction and leaning on them in his first published story. When we get to the discussion, I'll talk about more why this could be a parody. But like I said, I don't think you nor I, Glenn, are really fully equipped uh, or have read enough of this This period of writing of the Gothic uh, literature in the English language up to this point to really um, pick up on what is a, you know, supposed to be funny and and what's not, though maybe we can. Yeah, well, I think you think you're right there. I certainly took this to be in earnest. I, I do want to point out right, that this is, it's not, not exactly the same move, but it's very similar to the move that we just had Hawthorne make. Where here Poe is saying, this is an imitation of the the German style of story or styles of story that are all the rage in German. And then we have Hawthorne actually pretending his story is translated from French, right? And the, these stories, they're not exactly contemporary with each other. I mean, Poe and Hawthorne are, you know, contemporaries had you know, real rivalry as well, though these particular stories are are separated by about 10 years, I, I think, which is, a, you know, that's a pretty long time in a person's life. But yeah, there's there's something here, right, where these, these American writers are, are wanting to ground their stories in these European traditions for their readers. Right. And that's because American letters was just kind of being born. Like, what is an American story? We'll get a little bit into that in our discussion. So, but next we do have that epigram from Martin Luther. This, your translation was so much more clearer than the one given in the Norton Critical Edition, which was, your plague was I living, your death shall I be dying, which, you know, means alive I was your plague, my death shall be your death. So uh, I really prefer your translation to the one given. But this was uh, apparently an oft-repeated phrase that Martin Luther used in reference to the authority of the Pope and the Catholic Church uh, during the Reformation that he was really the, the forerunner of. So he's really talking about the plague that he was on the Catholic Church church and and the movement that he started even when he dies will continue to to diminish the, the catholic church well, I think it's even specifically uh, the question of whether or not Martin Luther is going to be executed, yeah. <laughs> uh, which he is, right? And whether or not he's going to be executed by the Pope. So basically, he's quoting, uh, you know, someone from, uh, you know, long, long ago, also a galaxy far, far away, right? He's quoting Obi-Wan Kenobi here. If you strike me down, I shall only become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That's what he means. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely what he means, of course. But uh, <laughs> in, in terms of in terms of rivalries of power, um, I think we'll right. see how that comes into play in the in the story that's about sort of two feuding families. So just based on the subtitle of the story and the epigram, I think we're given to understand that this story will be some sort of trope-filled gothic tale about maybe corruption of authority or, or authorities in conflict, I suppose. We'll just have to see how it all plays out. 
Right. So, yeah, well, we we still are not actually at the, the story proper yet because there is also a, a little prologue here as well. Uh, but we will actually get to the story eventually. But right here, we've got this prologue where we've got a, a narrator uh, who's going to go unnamed. It's going to be largely unobtrusive. But this is a story that is told by someone who is aware that he is telling a story to, to people. And, and maybe that's supposed to be Poe himself. But in this prologue, he, he gives us the setting and also the theme of the story without any particulars of the plot just yet. So he's, he's cagey about when this story takes place, but he says that it takes place in Hungary, and takes place at a time when a hidden belief in the doctrine of metempsychosis was popular. Uh, So we should talk about those things as well before we actually get to the story proper. This is like the list of things you said that we had to do before we actually get to the story. But we've actually talked about metempsychosis before. Again, that was in the context of of Gene Wolfe. But we should, uh, you know, I guess we should should refresh on what that is. Yeah, this is is the idea of the transmigration or trans of souls. Really, it's about souls returning to life in some sense or, or filling some other container, a body uh, after the body dies or the previous body dies. Once again, I mean, what we're really dealing with is substance dualism. And that means there's two substances, there's spiritual substances like souls, and then there are physical substances, material substances like, you know, bodies, like anything that has matter, basically. And this is the idea that a soul can be reborn in a different container, whatever it is. Uh, And this story kind of almost leans more on a, I don't know, Hindu idea of reincarnation that souls can fill any sort of container that has life, any animated being, including animals. So I guess what I really want to say here is how astonished I am that how many of these early weird fiction and horror (laughs) stories deal with dualism. And I guess it really is like a really weird idea. I think if you had no concept of substance dualism, though, Western philosophy, Western civilization has almost always had this sense of there being something other than just material. But if you had no concept of this and and someone came to you and said, hey, there's something else besides your body that makes you, you, you might feel like that's a really strange assertion, but maybe not. I think anybody who would be able to understand that statement would have consciousness and consciousness is just a strange thing to say the least. So yes, we're dealing with souls again and the containers that they fill. Yeah. And in this particular case, Poe presents this, this idea of metempsychosis here as, as being a hidden belief uh, that's uh, taking place here in Hungary. So basically it's a, it's a type of Christian heresy. There's some, some Christians running around in Hungary who are believing in reincarnation, which is heretical to, you know, Orthodox Christian thinking. But I have absolutely no idea if there's a real heresy that Poe is referring to here, I, I can't think of what this would be. Do you Do you have any ideas about that? I don't know what specific heresy he is referring to, um, but I think he is looking at a sort of hypocritical behavior of the ruling class and uh, their public and private beliefs. At least that's one level of hypocrisy that he's looking at. I mean, before... Poe really digs into this idea of metempsychosis here before getting to the main narrative. He adds an allusion to a work, a 17th century work by Jean de la Briere called On Man, uh, which is a quote 
here that he says all of our unhappiness comes from not being able to be alone, which reminds me of Blaise Pascal's statement from Pensies, which was written sort of around the same time, or, or thoughts, uh, which is that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly alone in a room. But this, I think he chooses this Briere work uh, to introduce us to the ideas about isolation and loneliness, how this maybe relates to certain class abilities, like maybe it's only nobility or lordship or people of this upper class who are able to actually be alone, to have this sense of leisure. Um, in any event, Breer's work is in part a, a degrading depiction of the habits of nobility. And I'm sure that's why Poe uses this quote instead of a, a, a c- contemporary kind of Christian apologetic work that says the same sort of thing to the time when Breer was writing. So one thing that I think Poe is really looking at in this story is, and it's strange, and we'll look at why in our discussion, perhaps he's using this uh, Hungarian nobility or really foreign or alien nobility here, is to look at the hypocrisy inherent maybe in the ruling class. Well, that that is definitely what is going to be happening here. And of course, that is a big, big uh, part of the Gothic tradition. Uh, I, I don't have any idea what Christian heresy this could be either. And I, I actually don't think that Poe knows either. I think this is just something that Poe is making up, right? Like it's this is set in, in Hungary. It just can be like a mysterious place. That's where vampires are too. Like you just, you just put stuff in Eastern Europe when like right. you just, you know, you don't want people to ask too many questions about it. And I think that's what's going on here. I don't think he's actually trying trying to ground this in any particular uh, context. Though we will get some other clues in this story about when this is taking place, which I, I just, I, you know, I can never let those clues go. I always have to know when a story is taking place and <laughs> Poe doesn't say, so that's what I want to do as I'm going through reading the story, at least on my first read. But uh, let's actually get into the story now. So we've been dancing around this a little bit, but yeah, this is the story of two aristocratic families in, it's either medieval or early modern Hungary. And what that means, of course, is that they are German-speaking families then. Uh, their names are Berlefitzing and Metzengerstein. And, and hey, Metzengerstein, that's the name of the story. Uh, they are neighbors, uh, but they are also bitter rivals. The origin of the feud between these families is unknown, of course, but there is some popular prophecy about these two houses that everyone knows and that is at the heart of the rivalry. And the prophecy is this. A lofty name shall have a fearful fall when... Like the rider over his horse, the mortality of Metzengerstein shall triumph over the immortality of Berlefitzing. And that seems to me to be nonsense, but I think we should keep in mind, right, that Poe has already invoked ideas about reincarnation here. We should also note that uh, the castles of these two families are basically right next to each other. I mean, not maybe the way that like our homes are today, but that they, they, they can see each other's castles from their windows. And so that is the backstory that we need. But our our principal characters here are the patriarchs of these families. Wilhelm, uh, Count Berlefitzing, he's an infirm old man, while Frederick, the the Baron Metzengerstein, is still a teenager whose parents are are, are dead, which is basically a gothic prerequisite. And the story takes place on the fourth day after the death of Frederick's father. And it's part of a, a sequence of brutal actions that Frederick took when he became Baron. And Poe says that for three days, he engaged in shameful debaucheries, flagrant treacheries, and unheard of atrocities that let his vassals know that although young, 
He was not to be trifled with. And I'm, I'm basically envisioning here a kind of montage sequence that's basically the <laughs> baptism scene from The Godfather, right? That's all I can see here. And it is in this context that uh, the Bear Fitzing Castle catches on fire on the fourth day. Uh, and I guess the insinuation here, right, is that Frederick ordered this to happen. Uh, he really is concluding all his family business as he starts his baronage. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on here, and it's all pretty cool and pretty fun in terms of I don't know, an act of creativity. We've got feuding houses and an ancient prophecy. And this phrase, like a rider over his horse, is certainly going to <laughs> impact <laughs> the telling of this story. Uh, but yeah, this prophecy, which is where I want to start here, is really confusing. It's a confusing sentiment. You know, how is one family immortal and another mortal? How can mortality triumph over immortality? And I suppose that we'll discover the answers to these questions in, in, in Metzankerstein, the story. To me, this is a confounding a statement as the Harry Potter prophecy, neither can live while the <laughs> other survives. And I think that, you know, the ambiguity of prophecy and of soothsaying and things like that and the truth of such statements or unraveling the truth of such statements is probably part of the fun in creating such prophecies and writing about them. But yeah, this is a part of this this uh, tradition of storytelling that, that Poe is engaging within. And Next, I want to talk about here the the two families. Neither is really depicted well, though they are depicted, I guess, as, as sort of opposites of one another. Brilla Fitzing is not really depicted with much dignity, but he's kind of a traditional nobleman, and he's really presented as a disinterested fool. Like, all he really cares about is hunting. He's not really ruling anything. On the other hand, Metzengerstein, the young teenager, as you said, is a, is a child. He's an orphan. His parents both died. But the narrator here, uh, which is really strange, has given Lady Mary a, a, a kind of strangely good death. We're told that she died young of consumption with all of her passions intact, and she's buried under the leaves of autumn. And this is narrative intrusion. This is really uh, maybe the only case where it really happens in the story. And as moved as the narrator is by the death of Metzengerstein's mother, we're told that in contrast, the boy Frederick is unmoved. He's presented as heartless or unfeeling. So we're given these two kinds of opposites uh, in, in the two ruling families. Burla Fitzing is sort of passionate. He's a hunter. He loves riding his horses. Young Frederick Metzengerstein is, is maybe soulless. He's without feeling. One's old, one, young, one is young, etc. And then we're given more description of Frederick, who's compared to both Herod and Caligula, these are not really people that folks of, of any time period, but particularly when this story was written, would <laughs> want to be compared with. Herod the Great uh, is the king of Judea. He's mentioned in the Christian New Testament. He's the one who sent you know people out to kill all the newborns, the massacre of the newborns, in order to ensure that a new prophesied king would not take over his reign. Also in the Gospels, Herod is responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist during a party because he told a, a dancing girl, uh, Salome, I think typically uh, it's viewed as that that's a wife of Herod, that he'd give her anything she wanted as a gift for her dancing. And she says she wants the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And even though he feels kind of bad about it, he does it anyway. So this is a rough dude willing to behead a, a, a living man who's viewed as holy by this uh, Christianity, by the religion, because uh, he promised a girl that he would do anything for her because she was a good dancer. And then Caligula, 
you know, is mostly well known to us for his completely debauched lifestyle. So, you know, Frederick is awful. And to say that he outherited Herod or is comparable with Caligula, that's just scratching the surface of how evil Frederick acted in the early days here of his uh, taking over the rule, the reign of his family's power. He's too young and with too much power, and he's just utterly corrupted by it, if he even had a soul to begin with. Right. And and, and that's going to be the real question, right? Is, is does he have a soul or not, right? We've been clued in already, right, to pay attention to this business of souls, to be thinking about souls as we go. But at this moment, right, we can get back to the story. At this moment in the story, Berlifitzing Castle is burning. Frederick Metzengerstein is in his chateau. He's he's hanging out in a, a room in one of the, the top stories. He's just deep in meditation on the tapestries there. This actually, uh, you know, it's Caligula who's been invoked here, but actually feels a little bit like Nero, right? Who famously fiddled while while Rome burned. But these these tapestries that he's hanging out with here, they they show the long family history through the High Middle Ages. But there is one detail in particular that Frederick becomes obsessed with. And this is the killing of uh, some Berlifitzing dude by some Metzengerstein dude with a dagger. The, the context is is some battle, I guess, but it's it's actually the Berlifitzing's dude's horse that Frederick is most interested in. And he stares at this horse for a long time, I mean, like obsessively. He's entranced by it. Uh, and in fact, he becomes afraid of it, and he just bursts from this room, like he needs to escape from it. And as he opens the door, the whole room is bathed in red light from the the light of the fire in the Berlifitzing castle. And in that moment, Frederick's shadow is cast on the tapestry, and it exactly overlays the depiction of his ancestor who is killing. And and here, we should be clear, Poe uses the word murdering the Berlifitzing dude in this tapestry. But now Frederick's been been broken from this reverie. He's back in the world. He's he's back in the the present because his subordinates they've got some news for him about the fire and what's going on with the present day Berlifitzings. They have found an impressive horse roaming their land that they assumed belonged to the Berlifitzings that had had fled the fire. It's it's even got the initials of the count branded on it. But the Berlifitzing grooms say that it doesn't belong to them, so that means now it is Frederick's, and Frederick is excited to have a cool new horse. But at the same time, another of his servants comes to tell him that something has happened to the tapestry in the room that he was just in. A a small portion of it has suddenly just disappeared in some totally unexplained way. Now, we don't get Frederick's investigation of this narrated to us, and and Poe is not explicit about what portion of the tapestry is gone, but he does tell us that Frederick gets uh, pretty broody, it's pretty grumpy, and he orders the room locked up. He also learns now that the Berlifitzing Count has definitely died in the fire. Uh, In fact, he died in the fire because he was trying to rescue some of his horses. And I love this whole sequence, right? The the detail, the, the heightened emotions, the obsessions. This whole sequence here is just awesome. Yeah, the imagery is really incredible. And you did a great job of narratizing that moment when the shadow is cast against the tapestry as though the shadow of Frederick is holding this dagger and murdering the Berlifitzing ancestor. And this is the family history. And I love it. I mean, I absolutely love what Poe has written here. It is so 
evocative. And we also learn through these tapestries that the Metzengersteins had real power, not just like power, but like power behind power. They were influencers and like whisperers in the ears of kings and popes. And now where it's ended up is with a petulant child burning down the house of a minor rival in what should be a mourning period after his family's death. I mean, this is a real downfall of, of this family and the way that's presented in imagery as though the spirit world is kind of accusing Frederick Metzengerstein of this, of this act of murder here as it's happening, but also as it's kind of destroying the history of this family, the removal of this section of the tapestry, which, Hey, it turns out to be the horse that, that uh, Metzengerstein was really <laughs> into. And it's just gorgeous. I mean, it's such compelling prose and beautiful imagery. I, th- I just am uh, really astonished by it. Yeah, there's a real richness to the way that, that Poe is constructing all of this. This is not a big story, but the the world of just these two castles, I mean, it's not a big story and it doesn't take place over any kind of like large geographic expanse, even though we are dealing with, you know, a tale of two aristocratic castles here. Yet I still really feel like this world that Poe has invented here is a real place and that I have, you know, gotten to spend a few hours this week living there. It definitely exists in my imagination and Poe's ability to do that in the span of just a few pages is is really breathtaking. But all right, so we are we are in the last section of this story now. We're going to get the the resolution of the plot here. So from this point on, Frederick becomes a, a real reckless. He's obsessed with this new horse. It is fiery in color, and it's ferocious. It's even uh, demon-like in its demeanor. But Frederick loves it. He just rides it all the time. He won't go to court. He won't visit other aristocrats. He just stays on his own land and rides this horse. Uh, The horse has no name. Frederick keeps it separate from his other horses. He won't let anyone else groom this horse. And while this all seems like a real love for the animal, it doesn't actually appear to be. And in fact, he seems afraid of the horse. Now, the horse is apparently quite smart. It actually communicates by stomping its foot. And, and sometimes it seems to communicate things that really frighten Frederick. And one of his servants reports that Frederick always shudders before he gets into the saddle on this horse. Well, one night, Frederick wakes up in a a kind of mania, and he rushes down to his stables, and he takes this horse into the forest. And while the servants are waiting for him to return, they discover uh, a castle is on fire. And as it is burning to the ground, the servants see a horse and a rider emerge from the forest. And maybe this is Frederick, but Poe does not name the rider. So we, we may also want to think about that in the discussion. But in any case, this rider is disheveled and looks terrified, And the horse is clearly in charge here and is running out of control as the castle burns. And the story ends with the horse running into the burning castle, up the stairs, into the whirlwind of chaotic fire. And then the fire immediately dies. It just stops. And a cloud of smoke hangs over the ruined castle in the shape of a horse. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, I I wonder if a lot of the end of this story is caught up in maybe a sort of justice or at least a kind of comeuppance or maybe it's a kind of spectral revenge. I'm not really sure the fulfillment of prophecy, you know, who really wins at the end of the story? Is it better for everyone that these families are out of the picture, which seems to be the case? I mean, the case that the families are sort of out of the picture as being rulers of this uh, this place in Hungary. 
you know, th- there's all sorts of other stuff going on in, in the end of the story as well. There's sort of hints that Frederick is in a sense married to the horse. He spends so much time with it and it comes at the cost of everything else that society demands of him. There's this odd sort of like wedding vow section of the text where like no matter what happens, Frederick exercises the horse. He rides it. Uh, and certainly maybe it's a ghost horse. I, you know, I said at the beginning of the episode, you know, I'm no expert on this mode of Gothic uh, German storytelling, but the Norton critical edition has assured me that spectral horses are a trope of the genre. So, you know, that that's where we're at. And, and, you know, where I want to go with the discussion first here is to, maybe start with the the critical opinion um, or maybe a critical consensus that this story was initially meant to be a part of Poe's first collection of stories that he couldn't sell, but he wrote the whole thing. He wrote a preface to it and it was called the Folio Club. And I want to really just situate this story in terms of context, because I think that's, that's Poe's first story. That's maybe the most interesting thing to do with it. Uh, This folio club was a conceit that Poe created under which he could write, I guess, different types of tales and different voices. And it takes the form of a dinner party where each member, there are 11 members in total. So this story collection had would have 11 or 12 stories in it. They all had to bring a story and read it over the course of the evening. And as I understand it, the winner of this storytelling competition would become the president pro tem of the folio club and the loser i guess had to provide the next dinner and pay for all the hosting costs for the (laughs) next meeting and the members of this club apart from poe and poe got in because one of the members resigned or something like that they have names like solomon seadrift and horribile dictu and blackwood blackwood and chronologos chronology these are all parody names right and some of the critics think that this story was the story that Horribile Dictu uh, told that evening. Um, but the members of this club, Poe describes as people who really admired Sir Walter Scott and other people who really admired Horace Smith, who was, you know, the gunsmith, the maker, the inventor and uh, name who's given to Smith and Wesson. So the editor of the Norton Critical Edition of this of this. A collection of Poe's selected writing suggests, as I said, that Metzengerstein was Horribile Dictu's story for the evening. There's some textual evidence for that. That's why we have this narrative intrusion about the good death of, of Lady Mary Metzengerstein. Uh, and in, in the preface to the unpublished collection, you know, that, that we get this folio club preface, Poe was pretty down on the club. Like he's like, these guys are actually awful, but I'm really glad I was able to go to this one meeting that I went to where these stories were told. First of all, I just love this conceit for short story collection. Like how awesome is it uh, as like a dinner party, especially as a new writer to kind of test out all your voices, all of your influences to give form to a lot of the um, ways in which all sorts of literature have influenced your style as a writer, but especially for someone as involved in American letters or what American letters could be as 
Poe was while he lived. And and so all of this is kind of a background to why I mentioned that some critics have read Metzengerstein as more of a parody of German romantic tropes in the voice of somebody who maybe tells stories like this rather than a story that is being told in earnest as Edgar Allan Poe is the character of Poe or something like that. So I guess the first question that I wanted to ask you, Glenn, is if you could detect anything in the style of this story, uh, and especially in which the style the story was written in, to lend credence to that assertion that it is a parody, especially if we think of some later uh, Poe stories, Poe, you know, being known as a writer of the Gothic and the and the strange and the macabre, maybe even in the sense of Herbert W. Smith reanimator being Lovecraft parodying his own writing style as he's aware of it. So, I just wonder, as an early story of Poe's, if you maybe sense that Poe is too aware of his influences and doesn't feel confident to write them in his own voice or why this would be thought of as a, a parody or I don't know anything about the folio club. Yeah. I, so, so one of the, the things that we do here just to kind of, you know, how the, how the sausage gets made for, for listeners is that when the, 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 the person doing the discussion and commentary is the person who reads all the extra stuff and the critical editions that we have and so on. And it's actually kind of the job of the person doing the recapping to remain ignorant of that stuff <laughs> so that it can be used as fodder for the discussion. So I, even though, you know, really the, the genesis of Elder Sign is that I discovered a, a collection of Edgar Allan Poe stories in my grandfather's personal library when I was in seventh grade and was, was totally hooked at that point. Don't actually know all that much about Edgar Allan Poe and certainly don't know that much about the publishing history of Poe. So I had no idea about the existence of the Folio Club. And is it the case then, Brandon, that this is the only story from the Folio Club that ever actually did get published? And is it the only story then that is extant? No, it's not. Uh, a few other, I think, stories did get published, but they got published in really weird ways. And editors had different things like the, the version of Metzengerstein that we read in the next two versions of its publication had different parts cut out, like the bit about the the narrative intrusion about Lady Mary's death isn't present in some of the versions of the published text uh, that came after it. So yeah, there were some alterations. So I think uh, the stuff that revealed, that would have revealed to, to an editor or would have been um, tying the stories together in this folio club conceit have all been sort of erased from um, later editions. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I, I love story cycles like this. I mean, Brent and I were just doing uh, a Neil Gaiman story that uh, exists or, or pretends, pretends at any rate to exist as part of a story cycle similar to this. I mean, it's a real conceit that I that I, I just absolutely love. So uh, I wish that we had that. I, it would be interesting if someone could reconstruct that or at least give us uh, you know, give us what there is of it. I, I don't know how possible that is. But anyway, that's really cool to know. But your question really is, hey, c does this seem like a parody or not? <laughs> and, and I, you know, it does not seem like a parody to me, but for all the reasons we've already listed, which is simply that we're not familiar enough with the the stuff, the material uh, that is being drawn on here, but also simply because this is from almost 200 years ago now at this point, that what Poe was writing that was meant to be funny just might not strike us as funny. I mean, it's hard to even just go back and watch comedy shows from 20 years ago, let alone, you know, 200 years ago and, and, and get what's funny about them, right? I mean, that's the whole like Seinfeld isn't funny 
trope now, right? Like younger people watching Seinfeld just have just don't think it's funny. Whereas, you know, for us when it was contemporary, it, it super, super was. So I don't sense anything here necessarily that strikes me as parody, but I will say that there are some elements of the story that are very clearly over the top. And potentially those were meant to be parody, meant to be funny, right? That this story, I mean, this story is is gothic, but it is definitely gothic dialed up to 11, right? That everything is taken to a real extreme here. So even just comparing this to like the British or the English, maybe I should say more specifically gothic tradition, that could be a little more, you know, restrained, <laughs> have a little more, uh, be a little more stately, be a little quieter, I guess, even about, about the tropes and the presentation. This is just dialed up to 11. But I don't know if that's simply because that's just Poe's style or if it's meant to strike us as funny, because that is, of course, one of the tools of parody, right, is to to take something and and then make it really extreme as a way of showing us how ridiculous that premise is. Yeah. And, and I think Poe loved uh, the gothic. And as we're told in the introduction to uh, this portion of the Norton Critical Edition, the arabesque, which really just means the strange that, you know, and he had shorthand for that. We get mention of the Saracens in this story. So like anything you know, he, if he, it was like Egyptian or Asian or Saracen, that's Poe saying, this is so foreign to our culture and alien to us. That's his evoking that sense of, of the arabesque. So uh, I think what Poe was trying to do in this story is show his mastery of the tropes is style them up to 11 uh, on some level to maybe poke some fun at them. But also this is the mode that he writes in. I mean, thinking of the telltale heart or something like that, the cask of Amontillado, stories like that. I mean, they are about a sort of revenge or, I don't know, self guilt revelation, something having to do with uh, the comeuppance, a justice being meted out to somebody who deserves it. And that is certainly present in this story as well, or somebody who doesn't deserve it, perhaps to create a, a more a more horrible premise. But this story is about, I think, on some levels, Poe's view on class and uh, especially inheriting a literary tradition that is not American, that is European, that has a lot to do with class. And, and that's kind of where I'd like to to look at to go next in in our discussion here. The way that Poe presents to aristocratic families in the story does not communicate to me as a reader any real sense of sympathy or tragedy. Like, oh, you know, the aristocratic class has come to ruination by changing economic demands and things like that. And now they're house poor and trying to regain their status or there's some hideous thing in their background. That's not really a part of the story. It is about the ruination of two aristocratic families, but it's totally self-inflicted. It has nothing to do with broader shifts in society. You know, both Berlefitzing and Metzengerstein, the families are presented as being pretty awful. These guys still have lots of wealth and power when the story begins, but I guess they squander it in different ways. So I wonder... What kind of comment you think that Poe is making about the presence of aristocracy in these sorts of stories? And do you get the sense that he feels we should be sympathetic with the ruling class and their downfall? Or is he, through this type of story, trying to knock them down a peg himself? Yeah, I mean, there is no sympathy for for these characters here. They they aren't doing anything. They they are presented pretty well just as as 
parasites here. They control all this land. They don't actively do anything. Even when Metzengerstein is being described as being a recluse after the the incident of the the fire and after he's got this new spectral horse who, you know, turns out to be Berlifitzing reincarnated, right? That's the whole deal that's going on here. That even after he becomes a recluse, the things that he's not doing is like just going to parties and going to court and trying to be influential. It's not ever presented as uh, he has some kind of obligation to public service that he's not fulfilling. That that's not the way that Poe is presenting what aristocrats do in this context, and I don't think that is what aristocrats would have thought of what they do in this context. Which, and I, and I am, by the way, I, I said at the top of the show that I was going to be on the lookout for clues about when this is, and then I didn't really do that in the the recap. But you did just mention this, the appearance of this Saracen in the the tapestry, and I, I that that has to, I well maybe it doesn't have to, but to my mind indicates that we're talking about either the late Middle Ages here or early modernity that we're probably really talking around 1500 or so, uh, because I think that Saracen in this context really means Ottoman Turk. Uh, and so we are talking about at least something that takes place like after the Battle of, of, of Kosovo in the 14th century is my uh, is my sense there. And and so definitely, I think in this, this sense that these are just aristocrats who have power via ownership of the land, and uh, that is not something that is in the uh, the political discourse of America here in the the first half of the the nineteenth century, which is where the conversation is. Uh, definitely, we don't want a monarchy, but uh, is maybe a question of are we wanting some kind of aristocracy, and how do we go about getting that? But actually, even the idea that your political party might want to establish some kind of aristocracy, in contrast to having a democracy saying that was uh, a real insult. And uh, and Poe is, you know, of the educated class of citizens here in America, right? He's, he's a part of the culture. So he is someone who would, in fact, be thinking about exactly this sort of thing. He had gone to the military academy. He didn't you know, do anything with that, but he had he went to went to the military academy, uh, and so was someone who is involved in that discourse, which was a real dominant part of American culture at this time. Figuring out what is this country we've just invented going to be like, and I think this is definitely Poe saying, "Well, it's not going to be like this, or at least this would be a real bad idea." Yeah, I mean, Poe was very aware of what was happening in American history as he was living through it, of the questions that drove America, and of his own role. I mean, these all these writers of this um, kind of romantic movement in America that was, you know, we talked a little bit about American transcendentalism as well, uh, which was also taking place during this period. This is all pre um, the period we call like modernism in uh Western literature, particularly British and American literature, which begins, I don't know, a little after 1850. The dates are a little porous, obviously. But this is really in the end of the Romantic movement. It's it's waning years, the last 15 or 20 years of it. And Poe is just very aware of what he's doing and what his role in American letters is, what he's trying to do in creating an American literature. And I want to talk about that a little bit, too. In, in our discussion of Rappuccini's daughter, we spoke of American transcendentalism as, as being part of the Romantic movement in some ways, or uh, part of a response to it. And one thing we really didn't emphasize in that conversation, though we talked about it briefly, was the degree to which the questions of what is an American, the question of an American nationalism or general nationalism, 
was being asked in light of the question of the promise of America. And nationalism is national identity is a big part of romanticism. This, this question of where do I belong in the order of things being nature, government, my status as citizen, all these questions were a big part of the romantic movement. And as we said, Poe's writing is firmly fixed in this era as it's kind of overlapping with American transcendentalism. But in this story, his first published story, he's really focused on another country's citizens, perhaps, and their sense of themselves or what it means to be an aristocrat or something something along those lines. And and then I really realized that a lot of Poe's most famous stories, including those that feature his detective Dupin, either don't take place in America or deal with aristocracy in some way. And that that really jumped out to me in this story, too. And I wonder if you had any thoughts about Poe using his perspective as an American to maybe critique nationalism or critique ideas that were inherent in the Romantic movement, whose tropes he relied on a lot as a writer, but maybe he was also critical of in, in some senses. And this first story seems to me to be one where these ideas are kind of more on display than than some of his later ones. Well, there there definitely are some interesting things going on with uh, national or, or, or ethnic identity in this story. There's a story that takes place in Hungary, but the characters that uh, that get names in this story are not speaking Hungarian, may, may not speak it at all. They're German speakers because they are the aristocracy. The aristocracy of Hungary is largely German speaking at, at this at this point. Uh, Hungary, of course, becomes you know a part of uh, well, in, in is I guess really probably at this point, depending on when we think the story is taking place. Part of the the Habsburg crown lands uh, becomes the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? That does not break up until the the end of the First World War. So already, right? There's a real question of of what is the ethnic or the national identity even of the families here in this story. Uh, are they German? Are they Hungarian? Is that even a question that we we should be asking, right? Is that a category that exists at the time that 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 either Poe is writing the story or envisioning the story as taking place? All right. So that's definitely something that's that's infused into the story. But but yeah, nationalism as a as an ideology, as a belief system, is is nascent here in in Poe's life, right? He's one of the the first generations of people who would have been born into a world where this is one of the competing belief systems about people's identity. Uh, it's not yet cemented that that is going to be the belief system that we're all going to live with, uh, you know, that we do live with now. Uh, in fact, right, we can see that the Civil War that uh, is fought in the middle of the 19th century as a, a war about nationalism, about whether or not the United States is a nation or multiple nations and what that is going to mean. And Poe is very much uh, involved in that. But we also see Poe, of course, as a real uh, Francophone, right? He's someone who loves France. He loves French. And that's a big part of American political discourse at this moment as well in the, the first half of the 19th century, because what is happening in France, what has happened in France is the French Revolution, then the betrayal of the revolution by Napoleon, and then uh, new republics, and then new monarchies, and so on. It actually gets dizzying how quickly France <laughs> goes back and forth and how many times goes back and forth between being a monarchy and a republic and how democratic it's going to be and how 
Americans are feeling about what's happening in France is often uh, actually a way for Americans to talk about how they feel about what's going on in American politics as well. And that is a question of class. It is a question of democracy versus aristocracy. It is a question as well of of federal government versus state government and a question of North versus South and is America going to be a nation? And so I don't have a real like definitive reading of this story in a kind of nationalist sense, but you can see that that is something here that, that, that Poe is maybe not thinking about in this story, but that it has become a part of his worldview, a part of the zeitgeist and is manifesting in this story at the very least. Well, I think that's a that's a fantastic answer to the question and really gives us a sense of the complicated world that Poe was living in. I mean, Poe was an extremely bright, well-read, self-aware person. And you see that in, in like the letters he writes in his, you know, the, the writing of the Raven is kind of this classic moment of self-awareness that Poe has. Uh, it's so good. I mean, the writing of the Raven is itself a critique of Poe's own style by Poe. It's it's wonderful. And I think Poe was a critiquer of this idea of nationalism as an, as an ideology to live by, seeing as that America is a place that creating a national identity is really going to take some work as as it is a place settled by immigrants, by empire. And uh, it's just really fascinating. Every time we've talked about a post story, kind of these ideas come up because he was so involved in using other countries, I think, maybe involved is the right word. He was able to use the history of other countries that he knew, the uh, main philosophical through lines that formed them, that formed his own literature to talk about what, what's happening in America. And it's really, really fascinating stuff. But that that's all I have for Metzengerstein. We'd love to hear more about uh, maybe if you think we didn't cover something that you're interested in on the forums, please join us there. But that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And that's also where you can find the forums. You can also drop by our subreddit and indeed talk with us about this story. If you would like to support the network and get access to really at this point, dozens of bonus episodes, please do join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. So, Mitz Angerstein, this was the, the last story from this Patreon ballot. So next time, we're going to be back with the winner of the next one, and that is The Black Stone by Robert E. Howard, a story that was nominated by a Patreon supporter and a story that I am really, really eager to go do. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>